From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The flow of the Colorado River's dropping after decades of drought and now climate change, the Yampa River is having issues too. What can be done to ensure there's enough water to go around? Water is absolute. It is game, set, match. If you don't have water, your highways don't matter, human services don't matter, all of those issues don't matter if there's not water. Then, the Broncos' new head coach made the big headlines last week. Is a sale of the team next? We'll get perspective on that. And later, Colorado has a love affair with skiing. That history even includes horses on skis. The shoes were made of wood, two inches thick, eight inches wide, and 18 inches long, and were fastened to the horse's feet by means of wires and straps. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're going to spend some time talking about water today, making sure there's enough to go around. Let's start with the flow of water in the Colorado River. It's dropping. After decades of drought and climate change, that decline could trigger legal trouble and other complications and create big, unanswered questions. CPR's climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis has been looking into this for months. She begins our coverage. On a sunny fall day in Silverthorne, water and climate scientist Brad Udall sits by the edge of the Blue River. Its flows are made up of the snow and rain that falls here in the Rocky Mountains. And this water feeds the Colorado River and the tens of millions of people that rely on it. For decades, there have been concerns that one day there won't be enough water in the river to meet the agreements between the states that share it. Udall says that day could come sooner than most expected. If these continued low flows occur, We could get there in four to six years. The flow of the Colorado River has dropped 20% since the 1900s. About half of that is due to climate change. Udall says that decline could soon cause problems between the states that share this water. A hundred years ago, they signed the Colorado River Compact. It lays out how much water each state gets. At the time it was signed, climate change wasn't a concern. The fatal flaw of the compact as currently written are these fixed numbers in there. You can't have fixed numbers in a declining system. That's going to unduly impose pain on a party that's completely undeserving and never signed up for that. Part of that agreement is that the states in the upper Colorado River Basin, including Colorado, would keep a certain amount of water in the river to flow down to the states in the lower basin. Udall is sounding an alarm. If the river keeps drying up, that agreement could soon be broken. If that happens, the water shortage could trigger what's known as a compact call for the first time. That could mean Colorado being forced to cut off some water users to make sure there is enough water in the river to flow downstream. That will be a day of reckoning for the upper basin. And frankly, I think you probably never ever want to get there. You want to cut demands or have an agreement or somehow not get into a violation of that where all of a sudden all bets are off on how it gets resolved. Experts don't know how a formal water delivery shortage would play out. 
and that's what makes it so scary. Larry McDonnell is with CU Boulder and has focused on Colorado River law for more than 20 years. He says it's time for the states to iron out exactly how they plan to respond if that water delivery shortage happens. It would be ridiculous to get to that point and then start to try to figure out what to do about it. It's unclear what Colorado would do if there was a water delivery shortage. And the person who could answer that question declined an interview. Becky Mitchell, the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board, said in a statement that Colorado is committed to working with the other basin states and water rights holders through these and future water challenges. McDonald says one simple approach to keep more water in the river will be to use the priority system. Those with the newest water rights in Colorado will be cut off from the river. That could hit water utilities along the Front Range particularly hard. They have many of the junior water rights that they have to curtail much of the water that they rely on that will obviously have great effects on users in the cities. McDonald says the states have talked about less harsh ways to keep more water in the river. He says it's up to each state to create a plan on how to come up with the needed water, and they're still trying to figure that out. You know, there's a lot of different options here. It's just a matter for the affected parties to come together and and reach some sort of an agreement about what they think is the best way to go. A formal water delivery shortage might never happen. Upper Basin states aren't using their full amount of water, agreed to under the Colorado River Compact. And they could convince a court that climate change is the biggest reason the river's flows have dropped. But Jim Lockhead, the CEO of Denver Water, says they're working on an operation plan if they ever have to take a water cut. Certainly it would have significant economic consequences for both the Front Range and for Western Colorado, but we don't want to predict a doomsday scenario in the event that that happens, um, because we would try and figure out ways to mitigate um, impacts to our customers. Lockhead says Denver Water likely won't do anything, though until there's a court order for Colorado water users to cut off their supply to meet the compact agreement. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis joins us now to talk more about the Colorado River. Hey, Michael. Hi, Nathan. We heard from Jim Lockhead, the CEO of Denver Water, at the end of that story. For those who have lived in Colorado for a while, the complex relationship between Denver Water and the Colorado River is at least kind of understood. Can you go a bit deeper into how intertwined the Front Range is with the water that comes from the Western Slope? Yeah, Denver actually gets about half of its water from the Colorado River Basin. Man-made reservoirs collect the water, which mostly comes from snow that melts in the mountains. That's why we care so much about how much snowpack collects in the colder months. It's like a water battery recharged by snow. And then that water is pumped through the mountains in tunnels and pipes to Denver and other communities along the Front Range. So the health of the Colorado River matters to a lot of different parts of the state, not just the western slope. And other rivers eventually meet up with the Colorado River, supplying it with water. And one of those is the Yampa, which flows through Steamboat Springs in the northwest part of the state. It's a popular spot for rafting and fishing, and ranchers and residents rely on it too. But new water users there, coupled with climate change, are putting pressure on that river. What's being done about that? Earlier this month, the state made an official declaration. Most of the Yampa River is now over-appropriated. That designation means there's no longer enough water in the river for everyone who wants it. The problem starts with a decades-long drought fueled by warmer temperatures. There's now a lot less water in the Yampa River. At the same time, there are more people who want to use it. The new status won't change how the water that flows on the surface of the Yampa River is managed and used, but it does change how the state issues permits for groundwater wells in the area. 
Why would new wells affect the Yampa River? Pumping water out of underground wells can reduce the flow of rivers at the surface. Before now, that wasn't a problem on the Yampa because there was plenty of water for everyone. Water managers were approving well permits without much concern. But now that the river has been declared as overappropriated, they have to consider how new wells could affect the overall water supply before issuing new permits. So if you live near the Yampa River and you need a new groundwater well, how do you get a permit now? The changes go into effect in March, and people who want a new well or to expand an existing well might have to prove to state regulators that they can replace the water they use. That's done by submitting what's known as an augmentation plan. It allows a well user to keep using their water even in times of water shortages. The tricky thing is you have to go to water court to get one of these plans, and it can be Mm. difficult for an individual to come up with a way to replace water. So the local water district is working to create what's basically a group water plan that new water users can buy into. And other water districts in the Yampa Basin have done this, and it seems to work. I see. So how else have things changed in the Yampa River Basin? Well, most of the basins that feed into the Colorado River are already considered over-appropriated. Farmers and ranchers have long considered the Yampa Basin as the land of plenty. They could irrigate pastures and crops freely. That's rare for Colorado. That has changed. Now that there's less water, the state will make them measure and report how much water they're using. This is already done in most other river basins, but this is new for a lot of people in northwest Colorado. I see. So why do they need to measure their water? Remember, the Yampa River feeds the Colorado River, and the Colorado River supplies water to lots of other states in the West. Colorado has signed agreements with those states that limits its water use. And as we move into a drier, hotter future, Colorado wants a more accurate picture of where that water is going. Measuring water also makes it easier to make sure everyone gets what they're supposed to get. The Colorado River Congress met last week for its annual convention. They're a nonprofit group that advocates for the state's water users. What did they discuss? There's a general sense of urgency. These conferences are focused on Western water and the Colorado River. Lakes Powell and Mead in Utah, Arizona, and Nevada store Colorado River water for millions of people to use. Both of those reservoirs hit their lowest levels on record last year. That meant Colorado was forced to send water from one of its reservoirs down to Lake Powell to prop it back up. The states that share the Colorado River are about to start negotiating over the best ways to manage the river in a hotter and drier world. Colorado's top water officials say those discussions are going to be very difficult. They think there are solutions, but a lot of water users with very different needs will be at the negotiating table. So what comes next for the Colorado River? As these interstate negotiations begin, billions of dollars from Biden's infrastructure law will start to fund Western water projects. The money will help repair aging dams and canals, build new reservoirs, and fund rural water needs. $300 million will go to the states that share the Colorado River to help them with their drought plans. All this federal spending could help states and Native American tribes adapt to a world with less Colorado River water. The river negotiations are supposed to lead to a new set of rules by 2026 when the current rules expire. But if water levels in those reservoirs in Arizona and Utah keep dropping, the states might have to work out something sooner than that. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Nathan. Michael Elizabeth Sackis is CPR's climate and environment reporter. She spoke with us about changes on the Yampa River in northwest Colorado and how states are facing a new reality with less water in the Colorado River as climate change fuels drought. Now, let's talk about getting water from a stone. Really, 
It's not just an old adage. Many people on the Front Range and out in the plains use water from Denver Basin Aquifers, a geological formation that stretches from Colorado Springs to Greeley and out to Lyman. But population growth is stressing this water source. We had one well that was producing initially around 100 gallons a minute. We're lucky to get 40 gallons a minute out of it right now. That's Jesse Schaefer. He manages the Woodmore Water and Sanitation District in the northern part of El Paso County, one of a number of utilities that rely on Denver Basin water. KRCC's growth reporter Shauna Lewis recently took a deeper dive into El Paso County's Denver Basin waters. Hey, Shauna. Hey, Nathan. So when I think of an aquifer, I imagine a big underground lake. Are the Denver Basin aquifers like that? Well, a lot of people think of aquifers that way, but the Denver Basin isn't like that. It's a big bedrock formation made of sedimentary rock, kind of like sandstone. And these porous stones have tiny spaces in them that actually hold water. So a well sunk into the rock layers creates an opening for the water so it'll fill. And there are four Denver Basin layers that are considered major aquifers. How does the water get into the rock? It's actually sometimes called fossil water because it could be from tens of thousands of years ago. It's not like wow. surface water from streams and rivers, which comes from directly from rain and snow. Some rain and snow melt also makes it into the Denver Basin's bedrock aquifers, but it happens super slowly and they won't recharge in a human time scale. So Denver Basin water is considered non-renewable groundwater. You know, we heard earlier about some wells in El Paso County becoming less productive. Uh, what's up with wells that tap into the Denver Basin? A Denver Basin well can go some 2,000 feet deep, and it might cost millions of dollars. But in El Paso County, developers still frequently choose to use Denver Basin wells in spite of their expense and growing uncertainty because there aren't significant water supplies there. So the population is growing, the demand for water is growing along with it, and that's putting pressure on some of the big, deep commercial wells that serve Front Range and municipal community water systems. Woodmore Waters' Jesse Schaefer explains it this way. It's really a diminishing return that you get on Denver Basin groundwater these days. Every well you drill, you get less and less yield out of, and it takes more and more wells just to maintain your current level of water supply that you need to have in sufficient level to serve your community, which means more money, more capital improvement projects, and more cost, higher rates, higher water rates. I mean, this sounds like an imminent crisis. The experts tell me that people who get their water from a utility that relies on the Denver Basin do not have to worry that water won't come out of their kitchen faucets anytime soon. But hydrologists at the USGS Colorado Water Science Center say that some models show that some areas throughout the entire basin are going dry in the next 50 years. That depends on growth and the amount of pumping and the availability of other water sources. But keep in mind also that state forecasts show the Front Range population expanding by more than a third in coming decades, and El Paso County is likely to remain Colorado's most populous county. It could grow to nearly a million people by 2050. So besides people in the Woodmore District in El Paso County, who else is affected by this? Well, first keep in mind that neither Denver Water nor Colorado Springs Utilities rely on the Denver Basin to serve their customers. But some of the communities affected include South Denver metropolitan areas in the southwest part of Arapahoe County, and also northern Douglas County, along with a number of other El Paso County utilities. So bottom line, what can be done about this? The experts say improving water conservation and balancing agricultural, domestic, and commercial uses are important to keeping Denver Basin groundwater sustainable. And different places are exploring different ways of dealing with it. 
I recently reported on a potential project in El Paso County called The Loop. It's aimed at helping the Denver-based independent utilities in that area. All right. Tell us about The Loop. Well, a handful of utilities are looking at ways to work together to circulate water between the furthest northern and southern parts of the county. The idea is to use new and existing infrastructure to create a giant loop system that would take water flowing south in Monument and Fountain Creeks and pump it north again through ditches and pipelines. Hmm. They're calling it the loop for obvious reasons. And it would allow participants like Woodmore in the northern part of the county to get the water that they own the rights to but haven't been able to access. It would also allow them to more easily recycle treated indoor wastewater that comes from their Denver Basin wells, but now drains into the sewer. They'd be able to use treated water to what's called extinction, which means that they can keep recycling the water in the system until it's gone, evaporated or sucked up by plants. Now, this all sounds like it could be a pretty complicated project. It is. But Amy Lathan with Cherokee Metro District on the eastern edge of Colorado Springs says it's important to get ahead of the curve and explore these types of projects now before it becomes a critical issue as the region continues to grow. Here's how she talks about the situation. Water is absolute. It is game, set, match. If you don't have water, your highways don't matter. Your human services don't matter. All of those issues don't matter if there's not water. So we have to get the water equation finished. We have to find the long-term answer. So where are they at with this loop project? Well, the participating utility companies and a developer paid for a study that's currently underway, uh, looking at how to develop water quality, treatment, and transport. They've also asked El Paso County to designate a portion of its American Rescue Plan Act funds to help pay for the estimated $134 million loop infrastructure project. All right. Interesting stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Shauna Lewis is KRCC's growth reporter. Read her reporting and Michael Elizabeth Sackis' ongoing coverage of water issues in the state at CPR.org. When we come back, what could be the next play for the Denver Broncos? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Well, the Denver Broncos won't be playing in the upcoming Super Bowl, the team is still making news across the National Football League. A new coach, Nathaniel Hackett, was announced late last week, and soon there may be some clarity on the process for finding a new owner for the franchise. Joining us now to provide some insight is Denver 7 sportscaster Troy Rank. Troy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. So we'll certainly get to Nathaniel Hackett and what he'll bring to the table for the Broncos, but I'd like to start with the team's ownership. There have been questions about what will happen since then-owner Pat Bolin was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2014. He died in 2019. From that point, there's been no shortage of drama and uncertainty here. But over the weekend, NBC Sports reported that a banker and law firm have been hired to deal with the sale of the team. So, Troy, does this mean we're indeed getting closer to a final resolution? Yeah, you know, after years of uncertainty, if not acrimony, there's clarity emerging. It could be as soon as today where we Mm. hear 
uh, CEO Joe Ellison, the trust, and the Boland family in a United Statement saying that the team is now being put up for sale, ending the three and a half decade run of the Boland family. But they could not agree on Brittany Boland as the chosen successor by the trust. The siblings, the other six siblings did not agree on her uh, moving forward. And you need one sole voice. They needed, uh, 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 basically, she needed to be a unanimous choice. That was not the case. So the expectation now is they will move forward with a sale via auction with five to eight bidders. Those bidders would have been vetted. Not sure exactly how that process will go down, but we're talking about roughly $4 billion is the estimate that this team will go for selling price, which would make the, the largest price selling for a U.S. sports team in history. Yeah. Well, let's break down some of those things you, you mentioned. There's a lot to break down. Uh, that three-person Bolin Trust was set up by Pat Bolin when he stepped away from day-to-day operations in 2014. Uh, there are seven children uh, that own about 11% of the Broncos. His brother, John, owns the rest. Uh, this auction could be you know, coming forward here. And you mentioned that uh, the Broncos valued around $3.7 billion, I read, which was 10th in the 32-team league, the last time a team was available in 2018, the Carolina Panthers were sold for $2.28 billion. That's a lot of money we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, it's enormous. And pro sports franchise, the valuation has only gone up over the last 10 years. I mean, the New Jersey Nets, set, excuse me, now the Brooklyn Nets, set the record for the highest price team, sports team in a sell at $3.3 billion. The Broncos will pass that. I mean, there's no doubt. Most believe it'll be $4 billion. And to, the thing to remember about that, because Peyton Manning is expected to be part of a, a group bidding for the team, the, part of that money, the, the total sell price, one person has to have 30% of that. So this right. idea that Manning would be the owner, Peyton Manning's rich beyond his wildest dreams. He's not worth $1.2 billion if the sell price is $4 billion. So fans need to understand that, that – just because Peyton Manning's involved in a group, he would not likely be the voice of a group. He would be part of a group. Now, he could then have a presidential role. He could be in charge of stuff. But Peyton Manning is the exclusive owner. That doesn't necessarily jive with his financial worth, despite the fact that he's probably worth what, $500, $600 million. Right, right. And we'll talk about more of the uh, the people that are possibly going to be vying for this team. But I want to get back to the auction. Is this like someone standing in the front of the room being like, you know, I want five, I want six, I want eight billion. You know, what are we talking about here in terms of the auction? Yeah, I'm trying to get clarity on that because I don't deal with auctions. I, mean, I cover the team. I cover things off the field regarding legal issues, but not necessarily this. This would be a first. Remember, the team has been in the hands of the Bull and family since 1984. So it's not like this yeah. issue has been something we've covered before. But it's my understanding it would be very private and you would not know who loses the bid, what people are bidding necessarily, because billionaires don't want to be known as losers in something like this. You know, these right. these are people that have not necessarily been told no or lost in anything, but it'd be some type of private auction. The way it's set up, it's my understanding from my sources, it is it goes to the highest bid. It's not a popularity contest. The way the trust is written upon sale it must go to the highest bidder. And I remember these bidders, again, my understanding, would be vetted by the NFL. It's not just some random folks that are right, bidding because on this. It's all If I'm understanding, right, right, because 31 other owners have to approve the sale, right? So it can't just be what the, the, the Broncos want. It has to be approved as well, right? 
Yes. And again, highest bid and has to be approved. And it is Got a it. private club. That's why, you know, Donald Trump wanted to own the bills years ago. They would, you know, they weren't about to let him in. I mean, just to use it as an example, Peyton Manning was part of a group to try to, you know, buy the Panthers a couple the one sale you mentioned, his bid didn't go through uh, that, no. because it wasn't the highest bid. You think the, the NFL owners wouldn't want Peyton Manning to be involved? Yes, but the NFL owners are about one thing, money. <laughs> They're not taking less <laughs> to bring in somebody to say, oh, we've got as part of our ownership group, a John Elwer, Peyton Manning. That's just not how they operate. And they've never operated that way in recent years. So it would be, again, the way it's written would go to the highest bidder and then would have to be approved, which at the earliest, I was told that they would like this wrapped up in late spring. The earliest it could be approved would be at the owners' meetings at the end of March in Florida. You know, could it drag on? Yes, it could. You know how when you're dealing with the sale of this magnitude, it could be approved in principle. And then the transition doesn't happen until in the summer before training camp. But I know the goal is to have it wrapped up late spring. I just don't know if that's reasonable uh, based on where we are now. But it certainly is still possible if they announce that they're going to sell the team and put it up for auction this week. Right. So, Troy, you mentioned uh, Manning, John Elway could be possible owners of the team. Uh, There are a couple other people with very deep pockets who have been rumored to be interested in buying the Broncos. One is Amazon owner Jeff Bezos. I I know we're dealing with a lot of speculation here, but does that seem like a fit? It doesn't, from what I'm told, that he's just not ready to be involved in sports right now. I mean, he's been doing so much with space exploration and and just other interest. It's my understanding as of right now, it's just not his goal to own a professional sports team. He just doesn't need to, you know, he'd have to be kind of your desire to do it. And right now he does not have the desire to do it. Could that change? Of course. And he could wake up and say, you know what, they're available and I want to be involved, but I've been told that that's not the path that would go down. So I'm not expecting that, but certainly he has the wherewithal. Another uh, investor possibly is Robert Smith, uh, the investor and entrepreneur not only grew up in Denver, but according to Forbes, is the richest black person in America. It was reported Monday that Smith isn't interested in buying the team, but you would still expect the NFL to inquire, wouldn't you? He has been on their short list for years. Absolutely. As someone they would like and have kind of created a pathway that if he wanted to buy a team, but it is my understanding as of uh, Monday night that it was not his goal to purchase the Broncos and people ask why not well again when you're a billionaire you just you have a lot of things going on in your life and maybe one of them doesn't include wanting to be involved in a professional sports team because once you involve yourself with a professional sports team as an owner the criticism of your life and the microscope you go under is intense a lot of mm. these people live in private and do what they want when they want an answer to no one now all of a sudden Every Sunday becomes a referendum on you and your life, and it's not for everyone. And so that's why at times when people say they have the money to do it, yeah, but if they're not an intense sports fan or they don't see it as something a family legacy, they just say, why? Well, I don't need the headache. Now, again, if you love football and you grew up and this is your chance to buy it, okay. And it is a great investment. It doesn't look like it's ever going to devalue over the course, given when you look at the TV numbers. Football is king in American sport. But it's just the lifestyle a billionaire has. Does he want to put himself under this type of microscope? Let's step back from the billionaires and all of this money and talk about the fans sitting in the stadium watching the game. How big a deal is this for them? Yeah, it's interesting. Over the last couple of years, when I originally started doing stories on the fact that, you know, they could have an ownership change because it appeared to be going in that direction. 
given the acrimony among the siblings. And I think it will be nice once this thing is moves forward. I think you will see some type of united statement and there'll be some closure. I hope that for the Bolin family, because they're, you know, Pat Bolin, no matter what you think of him, he was a hall of fame owner. And mm -hmm. that is the nervousness and anxiety of some fans is they do need new ownership. It's not working with passing it on to a sibling. That's clear. And the lack of leadership from the top has ultimately impacted, in my opinion, the on-field product, but some owners aren't very good. I mean, there's, probably 10 owners right now in the NFL that are terrible owners, whether in through ways through mismanagement, uh, the people they hire or just their lack of uh, caring for their own fan base. So it's not always better for a new owner. So what you want, Pat Boland set the template is that you want an owner who's in, involved, but he hires the right people, gives them the resources and then doesn't meddle because you look at the owners like Jerry Jones, he's a great businessman. He's not a great owner of the team because he gets in the way and thinks he's the GM. You look at Daniel Snyder, who's a daily embarrassment to the Washington football team. Shad Khan in Jacksonville, outside of one year for the last essentially 15 years, have been an abject failure and embarrassment. So just because a person has deep pockets isn't a solution. But for fans, it has shifted from the anxiety of a new owner to we just got to cross our fingers because we really do need a new owner at this point because it's not working anymore. Like a lot of them were willing to give the Bullen family the benefit of the doubt for a few years but because of the yeah. acrimony fans i deal with and talk to just like you know what we need a fresh start across the need board a big change. well well let's talk about that fresh start you know something more definitive the broncos introduced nathaniel hackett as their new coach coach last friday and in an interview with denverbroncos.com he was asked about the formula necessary to end a playoff drought that has now reached six seasons like you mentioned listen to this i think in the end you know, I know who I am. I, I, I know who I need to be and how I want to be. I know the people that I want to surround myself with. I want to su surround myself with people that have a lot of the um, same thoughts as me, but don't ha necessarily have to be exactly like me, the people that shock me, so that we can come together as a group and, and just play well. I mean, that, that, that's what it's about. I mean, there's no secret crazy secret sauce. It's about the guys believing in one, one another. It's them believing in me, me believing in them, and just, just that trust. And if you build that, you know, it doesn't matter what your past is. You know, it just doesn't matter. It's about what's going on in the future. In his news conference last week, there were references to Star Wars and Justin Timberlake. It seems clear that Hackett is going to inject a bit of energy into the franchise, but I'm wondering how that translates to, to victories, as opposed to his predecessor, Vic Fangio, who maybe wasn't as excitable, but is recognized as one of the most knowledgeable defensive minds in all of football. Yeah, Nathaniel Hackett was, is human Red Bull, and Vic Fangio was Eeyore. <laughs> I mean, they are the antithesis of one another. The energy that Hackett brings is refreshing, and he is a modern coach. As someone who's coached, I coach my own kids from their age of essentially four to 19, you have to invest in kids, make sure they know you care about them, and then they will care about you to reach their potential. And many of these kids, they have the attention span of a ferret on espresso. You have to engage <laughs> them. That's why I know people think some of this stuff's corny with hacking, but knowing their music, knowing their movies, he's a huge Will Ferrell fan, knowing that all these type of things in their life allows you to engage in meetings in a way that keeps them invested. That was uh -huh. the problem with Fangio. He's a wonderful football coach. He just has trouble connecting with players in a meaningful way. And so as soon as you start losing, there's nothing binding you together. But how does it translate to the field? I think you're going to see a team that has more fun, that has more energy, that doesn't start flat consistently. But let's be honest. If they cannot solve the quarterback position, 
and get improved quarterback play, they might be a better team next year and still go 7-10 and 10 because, frankly, their schedule is much tougher. They have nine road games instead of eight, and they just play better teams. So yeah. I like the hiring of Hackett. It's a breath of fresh air. But, again, they need to solve the quarterback position. Well, there we go. A lot to talk about, and I know you'll be watching this. Thanks for joining us, Troy. You got it. Thanks for having me on. Troy Rank is a sportscaster with Denver 7. He joined us to discuss the potential sale of the Denver Broncos and the team's new coach, Nathaniel Hackett. This is CPR News. Stick with us. This is Colorado Matters. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's ski history is as deep as its powder and as full of surprises as a black diamond bump run. Karen and Peter Bodie have spent nearly a decade uncovering interesting historical nuggets in this state's long love affair with skiing. They've written two books on the lost ski areas of Colorado and continue to add new skiing yarns on their Lost Ski Areas of Colorado blog. Welcome, Karen and Peter. Hello. Thank you. Great to be with you. We have to jump right into the proverbial powder here with horses on skis. Uh, The mental picture is pretty astonishing. Karen, why were there horses in Colorado taught to ski? Well, it's because the winters were so long. And we found, I found in my research, an article in the Rocky Mountain Sun, where a freighter named Brockman brought his horses from Summitville to Baker Station on snowshoes. And, uh, The story read, the shoes were made of wood, two inches thick, eight inches wide, and 18 inches long, and were fastened to the horse's feet by means of wires and straps. The shoes were fastened on, and after a few days of practice in Summitville, the horses learned the modus operandi of the scheme, and on Monday, Mr. Brockman rode out one horse over from 50 to 100 feet of snow, while the second horse pulled a sled loaded with provisions over the same course. That was in the Rocky Mountain Sun in 1884. I can barely imagine a horse on skis. And you called them shoes. Uh, what, what, like snowshoes? Well, back in the 1800s, skis were called snowshoes. Mm. So everybody wearing skis was wearing Norwegian snowshoes, including the horse. And, and Summitville is a mountain... Uh mining town high in the South San Juan Mountains. So it's very remote in the winter. I mean, it's kind of remote in the summer, but um, it it would have been a challenge to get anywhere. And I presume the 50 to 100 feet of snow was probably a section where there'd been an avalanche or something that the snow would get that deep blocking the road. And so they actually rode the horse as it skied, it sounds like. That's what I think. I don't know if they got back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the horses were only passable bunny hill type skiers, but still pretty incredible. Uh, In your research, have you determined who is the greatest human skier in Colorado history? Let's get away from those horses for a little bit. Well, we were very fortunate to run into a person named Tim Nicholas, 
who was the director at the Grand County Museum in Hot Sulphur Springs. And he told us about a skier named Barney McLean. And he said, Barney McLean, many can argue, is the greatest skier ever to come out of Colorado. He has 12 national championships for both jumping and alpine, and he was captain of the 1948 Winter Olympic ski team. And, and he learned to ski from a, a guy named... Horace Button, who learned to ski. He was a rancher near Hot Sulphur Springs, and uh, he learned as a kid and started ski racing just as a kid. And so these small areas, these small towns, many of the uh, Olympic racers grew up in these small towns, skied on these little hills, and then as they got better, they moved to the bigger hills. And as the, the big ski areas developed, we think of, you know, Steamboat producing many Olympic skiers. But in the early days, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, many of those famous Olympians learned on little hills, which are gone now. Now, I know that Crested Butte is a town that is very much known as a ski resort today. But before there was a ski area... There was a ski club. It was formed by silver miners looking for some outdoor entertainment, I understand. Can you tell us about the Miners Ski Club? Sure. Uh, the miners skied everywhere on their snowshoes. To get around town, to town, they skied to Crested Butte to get their groceries and everything. And then they, they decided they wanted to have a little fun, too. So they opened a ski club. And this is what our uh, second book on the central area says. About 1886, we had a ski club that attracted much attention all over the country. We gave exhibitions on the steep hillside run just south of town. Had folks from Gunnison and other towns such as Montrose, Delta, Grand Junction, Salida, and Denver come to the ski exhibitions at the Buttes. And, and something that people don't realize about ski racing in Colorado with college ski racing was everybody thinks of maybe... University of Denver or CU Boulder as having, you know, big nationally known ski teams. But back in the, what would it be, 60s and 70s, 70s? Yeah. Um, Western State College in Gunnison was a powerhouse uh, in skiing. And they developed just little areas between Gunnison and Crested Butte that they would do their training. People came to Western State for national training and their ski team was national champions. And so very few people realized that that was a real mecca of, of alpine skiing. In your books, you really highlight that every little town had a hill and every little town had maybe a tow rope at best, right? And and how much of this was a community event, especially in the mountains of Colorado where there was so much snow and people, you know, really felt that community vibe going to, to the ski hill. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it was, you know, winters are long and keep those kids out of trouble. <laughs> and you know, a lot of it was just for the kids. And uh, yeah, almost every town had something uh, for the kids. And then that changed in the late 50s. They started to regulate the the lifts and things. Some of these things were really dangerous. And, uh, and so it evolved that a lot of the skiers went out of business, the insurance costs. And then also the bigger skiers were being developed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And if you're a teenager... And you grew up on the little hill, you want to go to the big hill once you're a teenager. So um, so that was just kind of the evolution of why uh, 
so many of those little skiers and little towns, but there's still a few left. Uray has one and Gunnison has one. I'm thinking sunlight, even near Glenwood Springs, where I live near, that you have Sunlight Mountain. That just seems quite small, comparatively. Well, these are real small ones. These are like they were in the up until the mid-50s. Ah, so even smaller. Yeah. Uh, Silverton has one like that. Durango has one. And the other thing is the ranchers jumped into the effort and uh, were helping a variety of ways. First of all, they would give a hill so that kids could come to their ranch for skiing. They would use their tractors to create rope toes. Rope toes and, oh. and uh, you know, they'd bake and have hot dogs and things, concessions. <laughs> Where were some of those? Uh, well, there was one north of Steamboat on a ranch. The Fetcher Ranch. The, the Fetcher Ranch, and that family went on to help build a Steamboat ski area. There was oh. one in Eagle. The little rope toes and things were run... You take an old Buick, you take the tires off of it, put some regular just rims without a tire, you know, and that, and you run that engine and that turned the rope toe. And then you, you nail some more pulleys onto posts on up the hill and you've got a rope toe. And so it was very inventive. And there was one family in Durango. I think they used it at three or four different places and they just move it around. And we were never sure whether to call those separate ski areas or the same one because one day, one one year, it'd be above the highway going up Coalbank Pass, north of Durango. And the next year, they'd have a slope below the highway, you know, and I don't know if that's two ski areas or one. Or... You have written about so many lost ski areas in Colorado. Uh, lost meaning they're no longer operating. And in many cases, it's tough to even find any signs they ever existed. What are some of the more unusual lost ski areas you've uncovered across the state beyond what we've spoken about today? Again, it was a ranch family by Partial, Colorado, which is between Kremlin and uh, Hot Sulphur Springs or Granby. And they built a little slope on their ranch and it grew back in. But it's kind of like looking at a photographic negative. Because of the beetle kill in the area, the slope had lodgepole pine on it. And then uh, aspen grew in where the ski slope was. And also some a lot of small lodgepole pine. And if you go there now, it used to be a slope cut out of a forest. And now the forest is gone because the beetle killed all the trees. And so oh. next to the ski run is empty. But the little lodgepole pine that grew in weren't subject to the disease. And so that's the ski run is where the trees are now. Just the opposite <laughs> of what you'd expect. <laughs> Karen, I mean, are some of these hunting trips, are they are they adventures for you, finding these places, hunting these forests to find places that don't exist anymore? It was really an adventure. We love Colorado. Discovering hills and areas where you never thought they would be. And one of them that we found near Greeley, Colorado, of all places, was called Shark Tooth. And they named it that because they found shark's teeth as they built it. Now, this Whoa. was a, an area that opened in 1971 with the logo of a shark wearing a ski hat and sunglasses. And it happened because the mayor, Mayor Perchlick, decided he would make a hill for the local kids. A lot of them couldn't go to the mountains. So he, uh, he created this hill. And it had a vertical of, they claimed 120 feet. I think it was closer to 100. But um, <laughs> yeah, we've met people that skied there. What's it like when you come upon a defunct resort? I mean, what's the feeling you get? I mean, you've been doing this for so long. 
would you still call this a hobby or, or has it become something more? What's that feeling when you say, oh, there it is. I found it. It's right over there. Well, it's a thrill. We just, you know, we go hiking around. We try not to trespass, but uh, sometimes we wander a little bit. <laughs> and uh, we're looking for any sign we can find. I'm thinking of Indian Mountain um, in South Park. And we were walking the, the hill and uh, couldn't find anything. And I turned around and there was a bench made out of snowboards with an Indian Mountain logo on it. And I said, oh, there really was a ski area here. Are there still hills that are left to be discovered, or have you two pretty much found them all? Well, I'm, I'm sure there's still some to be discovered. We found between about about 135 to 140. Again, it's what how do, what do you define as a ski area? And you know that one family that moved the rope to around a different place. You know, is that three ski areas right, or one? Right, right, right. There's still some to be discovered. There's a, a handful of the ones that are in our book where we never found the location, the exact location. But um, the, the thing that I think with our books is we've preserved this history because some of the people that we talked to, I, I talked to a man in the San Luis Valley who was 104, had hmm. still skied that year, but I, I suspect he's probably passed away by now. Well, I really appreciate you two taking the time to speak with me. It's such a fascinating history of these small little ski hills and things like that in Colorado. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Karen and Peter Bodie of Littleton have written two books on lost ski areas in Colorado, and they've continued delving into the state's ski history because they're now hooked on the topic. A tree on the University of Colorado Boulders campus has seen it all. Two world wars, 27 U.S. presidents, and thousands of graduating students— and fortunately, with its age catching up to it, arborists on campus made the difficult decision to chop it down. But CPR's Paolo Schulzita learned its legacy will live on. A light dusting of snow coats the newly cut stump of CU's old main cottonwood, which was planted 142 years ago in front of the university's first building. At about seven feet tall, the stump towers over lead arborist Vince Aquino, who isn't exactly short. He's pointing across the expanse of New Orleans Quad to show how far the roots of the tree have spread. I mean, I'm, I imagine they go throughout the quad. Um, they're going to chase water, so wherever they find the most oxygen and water, they're going to uh, go. I would say the roots from this tree are probably all over this quad at various uh, heights and sizes. Old Main Cottonwood was the largest and oldest tree on CU's campus. It outlived and outgrew 41 other trees it was bought alongside. While the tree looked healthy, it was showing its age below the soil. Plains Cottonwoods only lived to about 100 years old. It had just timed out and was starting to slow down metabolically, was starting to have more trouble processing energy and gathering energy. It was probably really slowing down and probably starting to lose root tissue, lose root mass. And then, uh, you know, you start to get decay and, and uh, other issues. The signs have been present for years. After several large printing operations to keep its canopy healthy, Aquino eventually decided the university was spending too much energy and money on an uphill battle. We started to get to where we were losing a pretty major percentage of the tree's canopy, and it sort of became evident that we needed to start planning for the removal of this tree. The tree came down in mid-January, while CU classes were being held remotely due to the spread of the COVID-19 Omicron variant. Freezing rains poured over Boulder, but that didn't stop people from paying their respects. 
The day after Cruz finished cutting it down, Aquino returned to the stump to find someone's graduation tassel hanging from a piece of bark. He said it wasn't the only memorial he found that week. Some folks left flowers, some people left some bundles of like evergreen boughs and, and things kind of bundled together with, with string and stuff. I know a lot of people had been visiting the tree. Evan Cantor and his wife worked at the old main building for several years before retiring. They were some of the people who left mementos at the base of the trunk. Cantor described the tree as an old friend. You take your lunch breaks, go, you go out there and sit underneath that tree or, you know, even just an afternoon break, you know, you'd go and sit under that tree and, and look at it. Cantor said there isn't really a specific memory of the tree that stood out to him. Instead, he remembered it for just being there, a constant presence through the decades that's rare to come by as Boulder and Colorado grows. Even the men's room, you'd be standing at a urinal and there's a mirror and you'd look up and there's the tree. It, it was just so ubiquitous. Even though it's just a stump now, the old main cottonwood's legacy may still live on. On two separate occasions before its demise, Aquino's team collected small branches from the tree and passed them off to CU's greenhouse. Inside an air-conditioned room made to replicate alpine temperatures, John Clark, the greenhouse director at CU, says if all goes to plan, those branches will turn into clones of the tree. Basically, we've taken those, uh, those branches that he brought in and made some 4-inch, 6-inch, and 8-inch cuttings, put some rooting hormone on them, and put them in these grow tubes so that they can have soil around them and have a little bit of moisture but not stay wet. While tree cloning may sound like some miracle of science, Clark said it's actually common to try and regrow clippings from a tree with favorable characteristics. Old Main Cottonwood fit the bill because of its uncommon age and size. There are two batches of clippings, one from 2014, which resulted in six baby trees that will eventually be planted on campus, and one taken right before Old Main Cottonwood was cut down, which yielded about 25 cuttings. Clark hopes a little more than half of those will survive and get planted. It's going to be a a five to six year process. We've got them in these small tubes next year after they root. We'll bump them up into two inch tubes, then up into three inch tubes. Then they will go into containers for the last two to three years and then they'll be planted outside. At some point during the spring semester, CU will plant one of its clones in the same area and install a commemorative plaque where Old Main Cottonwood once stood. And maybe, with some luck and good weather, one of those trees will also live through 27 U.S. presidents. I'm Paolo Shalsada, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today, and to the Colorado Matters team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.